0: Section Four of Essays in Idleness by Agnes Replier. The recording is in the public domain. Leisure. Zounds! How has he the leisure to be sick? A visitor strolling through the noble woods of Fernay complimented Voltaire on the splendid growth of his trees. "Ay," replied the great wit, half in scorn and half perhaps in envy. "They have nothing else to do." and walked on deigning no further word of approbation has it been more than a hundred years since this distinctly modern sentiment was uttered more than a hundred years since the spreading chestnut boughs bent kindly over the lean strenuous caustic disappointed man of genius who always had so much to do and who found in the doing of it a mingled bliss and bitterness that scorched him like fever-pain how is it that while dr johnson's sledge-hammer repartees sound like the sonorous echoes of a past age voltaire's remarks always appear to have been spoken the day before yesterday they are the kind of witticisms which we do not say for ourselves simply because we are not witty but they illustrate with biting accuracy the spirit of restlessness of disquiet of intellectual vanity and keen contention which is the brand of our vehement and overzealous generation the gospel of work that is the phrase woven insistently into every homily every appeal made to the conscience or the intelligence of a people who are now straining their youthful energy to its utmost speed blessed be drudgery that is the text deliberately chosen for a discourse which has enjoyed such amazing popularity that sixty thousand printed copies have been found all inadequate to supply the ravenous demand readers of dickens if anyone has the time to read dickens nowadays may remember miss monflather's inspired amendment of that familiar poem concerning the busy bee in work 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 in work alway let my first years be past and when our first years are past the same program is considered adequate and satisfactory to the end a whole lifetime of horrid industry to quote mr badgett's uninspired words this is the prize dangled alluringly before our tired eyes and if we are disposed to look askance upon the booty then vanity is subtly pricked to give zest to faltering resolution our virtues would be proud if our faults whipped them not they would be laggards in the field if our faults did not sometimes spur them to action it is the paean of orators and from what is courteously called literature that keeps our courage screwed to the sticking-place and veils the occasional bareness of the result with a charitable vesture of self-delusion work is good no one seriously doubts this truth adam may have doubted it when he first took spade in hand and eve when she scoured her first pots and kettles but in the course of a few thousand years we have learned to know and value this honest troublesome faithful and extremely exacting friend but work is not the only good thing in the world it is not a fetish to be adored neither is it to be judged like a sum in addition by its outward and immediate results the god of labor does not abide exclusively in the rolling mill the law courts or the cornfield he has a twin sister whose name is leisure and in her society he lingers now and then to the lasting gain of both saint-beuve writing of mademoiselle de Sevigné and her time says that we with our habits of positive occupation can scarcely form a just conception of that life of leisure and chit-chat conversations were infinite admits Mademoiselle sevigne herself recalling the long summer afternoons when she and her guests walked in the charming woods of les rochers until the shadows of twilight fell the whole duty of life seemed to be concentrated in the pleasant task of entertaining your friends when they were with you or writing them admirable letters when they were absent occasionally there came even to this tranquil and finely poised frenchwoman a haunting consciousness that there might be other and harder work for human hands to do nothing is accomplished day by day she writes doubtfully and life is made up of days and we grow old and die this troubled her a little when she was all the while doing work that was to last for generations work that was to give pleasure to men and women whose great-grandfathers were then unborn not that we have the time now to read mademoiselle de sevigne why there are big volumes of these delightful letters and who can afford to read big volumes of anything merely for the sake of the enjoyment to be extracted therefrom it was all very well for Saint-Beuve to say, Lisons-tout, Mademoiselle de Sévigné, when the question arose, How should some long, idle days in a country house be profitably enjoyed? It was all very well for Saint-Beuve to plead, with touching confidence in the intellectual pastimes of his contemporaries, Let us treat Mademoiselle de Sévigné as we treat Clarissa Harlow, when we have a fortnight of leisure in rainy weather in the country a fortnight of leisure and rainy weather in the country the words would be antiquated even for dr johnson rain may fall or rain may cease but leisure comes not so lightly to our calling nay st Beuve's wistful amazement at the polished and cultivated inactivity which alone could produce such a correspondence as mademoiselle de sauvigny is not greater than our wistful amazement at the critic's conception of possible idleness in bad weather in one respect at least we follow his good counsel we do treat mademoiselle de sauvigny precisely as we treat clarissa harlowe that is we leave them both severely alone as being utterly beyond the reach of what we are pleased to call our time and what of the leisure of montaigne who taking his life in his two hands disposed of it as he thought fit with no restless self-accusations on the score of indolence in the world and of the world yet always able to meet and greet the happy solitude of gascony toiling with no thought of toil but rather to entertain my spirit as it best pleased this man wrought out of time a coin which passes current over the reading world and what of horace who enjoyed an industrious idleness the bare description of which sets our hearts aching with desire the picture which horace draws of himself in his country home says an envious english critic affords us a delightful glimpse of such literary leisure as is only possible in the golden days of good harun al-rashid horace goes to bed and gets up when he likes there is no one to drag him down to the law courts the first thing in the morning to remind him of an important engagement with his brother's scribes to solicit his interest with or to tease him about public affairs and the latest news from abroad he can bury himself in his greek authors or ramble through the woody glens which lie at the foot of mount oustica without a thought of business or a feeling that he ought to be otherwise engaged swim smoothly in the stream of thy nature and live but one man counsels sir thomas brown and it may be this gentle current will bear us as bravely through life as if we buffeted our strength away in the restless ocean of endeavor leisure has a value of its own it is not a mere handmaid of labor it is something we should know how to cultivate to use and to enjoy it has a distinct and honorable place wherever nations are released from the pressure of their first rude needs, their first homely toil, and rise to happier levels of grace and intellectual repose. Civilization, in its final outcome, says the keen young author of the Chevalier of Pincieri Vani, is heavily in the debt of leisure and the success of any society worth considering is to be estimated largely by the use to which its fortunati put their spare moments here is a sentiment so relentlessly true that nobody wants to believe it we prefer uttering agreeable platitudes concerning the blessedness of drudgery and the iniquity of eating bread earned by another's hands yet the creation of an artistic and intellectual atmosphere in which workers can work the expansion of a noble sympathy with all that is finest and most beautiful the jealous guardianship of whatever makes the glory and distinction of a nation this is achievement enough for the fortunati of any land and this is the debt they owe it can hardly be denied that the lack of scholarship of classical scholarship especially at our universities is due primarily to the labor worship which is the prevalent superstition of our day and which like all superstitions has gradually degraded its god into an idol and lost sight of the higher powers and attributes beyond the student who is pleased to think a knowledge of german more useful than a knowledge of greek the parent who deliberately declares that his boys have no time to waste over homer the man who closes the doors of his mind to everything that does not bear directly on mathematics or chemistry or engineering or whatever he calls work all these plead in excuse the exigencies of life the absolute and imperative necessity of labor it would appear then that we have no fortunati That we are not yet rich enough to afford the greatest of all luxuries leisure to cultivate and enjoy the best that has been known and thought in the world this is a pity because there seems to be money in plenty for so many less valuable things the yearly taxes of the united states sound to innocent ears like the fabled wealth of the orient the yearly expenditures of the people are on no rigid scale yet we are too poor to harbor the priceless literature of the past because it is not a paying investment because it will not put bread in our mouths nor clothes on our shivering nakedness poverty is a most odious calling sighed burton many years ago and we have good cause to echo his lament until we are able to believe with that enthusiastic greek scholar mr butcher that intellectual training is an end in itself and not a mere preparation for a trade or a profession until we begin to understand that there is a leisure which does not mean an easy sauntering through life but a special form of activity employing all our faculties and training us to the adequate reception of whatever is most valuable in literature and art until we learn to estimate the fruits of self-culture at their proper worth we are still far from reaping the harvest of three centuries of toil and struggle we are still as remote as ever from the serenity of intellectual accomplishment there is a strange pleasure in work wedded to leisure in work which has grown beautiful because its rude necessities are softened and humanized by sentiment and the subtle grace of association a little paragraph from the journal of eugenie de guerin illustrates with charming simplicity the gilding of common toil by the delicate touch of a cultivated and sympathetic intelligence a day spent in spreading out a large wash leaves little to say and yet it is rather pretty too to lay the white linen on the grass or to see it float on lines one may fancy oneself homer's nausicaa or one of those biblical princesses who washed their brother's tunics we have a basin at moulinasse that you have never seen sufficiently large and full to the brim of water it embellishes the hollow and attracts the birds who like a cool place to sing in in the same spirit maurice de guerin confesses frankly the pleasure he takes in gathering faggots for the winter fire that little task of the woodcutter which brings us close to nature and which was also a favorite occupation of madame de la menet the faggot gathering indeed can hardly be said to have assumed the proportions of real toil it was rather a pastime where play was thinly disguised by a pretty semblance of drudgery idleness admits diggerine but idleness full of thought and alive to every impression eugenie's labors however had other aspects and bore different fruit there is nothing intrinsically charming in stitching seams hanging out clothes or scorching one's fingers over a kitchen fire yet every page in the journal of this nobly-born french girl reveals to us the nearness of work work made sacred by the prompt fulfillment of visible duties and what is more rare made beautiful by that distinction of mind which was the result of alternating hours of finely cultivated leisure a very ordinary and estimable young woman might have spread her wash upon the grass with honest pride at the whiteness of her linen but it needed the solitude of Leela, the few books well-read and well worth reading the life of patriarchal simplicity and the habit of sustained and delicate thought to awaken in the worker's mind the graceful association of ideas the pretty picture of nausicaa and her maidens cleansing their finely woven webs in the cool rippling tide for it is self-culture that warms the chilly earth wherein no good seed can mature it is self-culture that distinguishes between the work which has inherent and lasting value and the work which represents conscientious activity and no more and for the training of one's self leisure is requisite leisure and that rare modesty which turns a man's thoughts back into his own shortcomings and requirements and extinguishes in him the burning desire to enlighten his fellow-beings we might make ourselves spiritual by detaching ourselves from action and become perfect by the rejection of energy says mr oscar wilde who delights in scandalizing his patient readers and who lapses unconsciously into something resembling animation over the wrongs inflicted by the solemn preceptors of mankind the notion that it is worth while to learn a thing only if you intend to impart it to others is widespread and exceedingly popular i have myself heard an excellent and anxious aunt say to her young niece then working hard at college but my dear why do you give so much of your time to greek you don't expect to teach it do you as if there were no other use to be gained no other pleasure to be won from that noble language in which lies hidden the hoarded treasure of the centuries to study greek in order to read and enjoy it and thereby make life better worth the living is a possibility that seldom enters the practical modern mind yet this restless desire to give out information like alms is at best a questionable bounty this determination to share one's wisdom with one's unwilling fellow-creatures is a noble impulse provocative of general discontent when southey writing to james murray about a dialogue which he proposes to publish in the quarterly says with characteristic complacency i have very little doubt that it will excite considerable attention and lead many persons into a wholesome train of thought we feel at once how absolutely familiar is the sentiment, and how absolutely hopeless is literature approached in this spirit. The same principle, working under different conditions today, entangles us in a network of lectures, which have become the chosen field for every educational novelty and the diversion of the mentally unemployed charles lamb has recorded distinctly his veneration for the old-fashioned schoolmaster who taught his greek and latin in leisurely fashion day after day with no thought wasted upon more superficial or practical acquirements and who came to his task as to a sport he has made equally plain his aversion for the new-fangled pedagogue new in his time at least who could not relish a beggar or a gipsy without seeking to collect or to impart some statistical information on the subject a gentleman of this calibre his fellow-traveller in a coach once asked him if he had ever made any calculation as to the value of the rental of all the retail shops in london and the magnitude of the question so overwhelmed lamb that he could not even stammer out a confession of his ignorance to go preach to the first passer-by to become tutor to the ignorance of the first thing i meet is a task i abhor observes montaigne who must certainly have been the most acceptable companion of his day dr johnson too had scant sympathy with insistent and arrogant industry he could work hard enough when circumstances demanded it but he always felt an inclination to do nothing and not infrequently gratified his desires no man sir is obliged to do as much as he can a man should have part of his life to himself was the good doctor's soundly heterodox view advanced upon many occasions he hated to hear people boast of their assiduity and nipped such vain pretensions in the bud with frosty scorn when he and boswell journeyed together in the Harwich stage-coach a fat elderly gentlewoman who had been talking freely of her own affairs wound up by saying that she never permitted any of her children to be for a moment idle i wish madam said dr johnson testily that you would educate me too for i have been an idle fellow all my life i am sure sir protested the woman with dismayed politeness you have not been idle "'Madam,' was the retort, "'it is true, and that gentleman there, pointing to poor young Boswell, has been idle also. He was idle in Edinburgh. His father sent him to Glasgow, where he continued to be idle. He came to London, where he has been very idle. And now he is going to Utrecht, where he will be as idle as ever.' That there was a background of truth in these spirited assertions, we have every reason to be grateful.' dr johnson's value to-day does not depend on the number of essays or reviews or dedications he wrote in a year some years he wrote nothing but on his own sturdy and splendid personality the real primate the soul's teacher of all england says carlyle a great embodiment of uncompromising goodness and sense every generation needs such a man not to compile dictionaries but to preserve the balance of sanity and few generations are blessed enough to possess him as for boswell he might have toiled in the law courts until he was gray without benefiting or amusing anybody it was in the nights he spent drinking port wine at the mitre and in the days he spent trotting like a terrier at his master's heels that the seed was sown which was to give the world a masterpiece of literature the most delightful biography that has ever enriched mankind it is to leisure that we owe the life of johnson and a heavy debt we must in all integrity acknowledge it to be mr Shortreed said truly of sir walter scott that he was making himself in the busy idle pleasures of his youth in those long rambles by hill and dale those whimsical adventures in farmhouses those merry purposeless journeys in which the eager lad tasted the flavor of life at home such unauthorized amusements were regarded with emphatic disapprobation i greatly doubt sir said his father to him one day that you were born for nay better than a gangrel scrape-gut and one half pities the grave clerk to the signet whose own life had been so decorously dull and who regarded with affectionate solicitude his lovable and incomprehensible son in later years sir walter recognized keenly that his wasted school hours entailed on him a lasting loss a loss he was determined his son should never know it is to be forever regretted that the most homeric of modern men could not read homer but every day he stole from the town to give to the country every hour he stole from law to give to literature every minute he stole from work to give to pleasure counted in the end as gain it is in his pleasures that a man really lives it is from his leisure that he constructs the true fabric of self perhaps charles lamb's fellow clerks thought that because his days were spent at a desk in the east india house his life was spent there too his life was far remote from that routine of labor built up of golden moments of respite enriched with joys chastened by sorrows vivified by impulses that had no filiation with his daily toil for the time that a man may call his own he writes to wordsworth that is his life the lamb who worked in the india house and who had no skill in figures has passed away and is to-day but a shadow and a name the lamb of the essays and the letters lives for us now and adds each year his generous share to the innocent gaiety of the world this is the lamb who said riches are chiefly good because they give us time and who sighed for a little son that he might christen him nothing to do and permit him to do nothing End of section four.